1: Welcome to Cult Talk with Aaron Martin, a conversation, not an investigation. Cult Talk is a podcast that explores the realities of cult life, how they operate, who joins them, why people stay, and how some members eventually find their way out. Season 1 of Cult Talk will focus on a little-known cult called the Kobu, which stands for the Church of Bible Understanding, led by Stuart Trail. Well, my mom's story is over, but I'm going to be talking to other ex-members of Kobu in the next few episodes. And episodes 6 and 7 will focus on someone named James LaRue. You heard my mom referencing him several times, and that's because James is an author and he is an ex-Kobu member. So he's written extensively about his time in Kobu, and my mom and I have both read his books. I had the pleasure of talking to him last year and again this year for this particular podcast. So he's going to tell us about his long experience in the Kobu. It came after my parents left. So he was a part of this group when it got way more strict, way more harsh than even it was when my parents were in it at the very beginning stages. He also outlines how this group reflects other cults that he learned about and how he finally came to understand that what he was part of wasn't a church after all. It was indeed a cult. Just to note that James and I actually recorded this interview before Stuart Trail passed away. So if you hear us referring to Stuart as if he's still alive, he was at the time of our conversation. Here's part one of two of James LaRue telling his story. Cool fact. Well, I'm back with James LaRue, who is the author of Captive Congregation and the Tangled Web Letters from the Cult. He was a member of Kobu for many years, and he ended up leaving and writing about his experiences and does outreach on the internet to many ex-members who have connected with him over the years. I was able to interview him on my other podcast, Pink Shade with Aaron Martin, when I was just beginning it last year. And I was so excited to talk to him again today because he has such insight into what Kobu became after my parents left in 1979, he entered it later, and how Stuart Trail operated after that, which was much more extreme. And so, James, thank you for talking today.
0: Oh, I'm glad to talk to you.
1: Yeah, this is going to be really good, too, because I have read your books, you know, and before when I talked to you, I I hadn't read them yet, and so I really have more of a sense of what you went through. Can you just kind of go back and describe what led you into the Church of Bible understanding and, you know, what, what the initial draw was for you because you did a really good job of that in captive congregation, I think. So can you just briefly explain that?
0: Sure. Yes. I explain it in the book. I mean, as a young person, a teenager searching for meaning in life, I mean, that was the background of it. And I wanted to move away from home as well. And perhaps those two things together kind of led me into it. I mean, the actual fact is I was walking in the mall and someone walked up to me, one of the brothers in the church, and he had a new convert with him. And he was doing what we called witnessing or open Bible witnessing. And, And he walked up to me and said, can I show you a verse in the Bible? And uh, you know, I understood right away that he was a Jesus freak. But the thing is, I was searching for meaning in life and I had just been in the library and I had checked out two books on Buddhism because I thought, you know, maybe the answer's in there. So instead of just avoiding this person, I I thought, I had this curious thought. I thought, you know, he's probably an expert in what he does. He knows, he probably knows that Bible pretty well. And um, maybe I'll stay and talk to him and uh, I'll ask him some questions as well. And so, you know, I thought it was going to be a religious conversation. We could talk about different things, but he had he had other purposes in mind, which was kind of like recruiting. And that's that's what ended up happening. And, you know, in just a few words to explain that. But the other thing I'd like to say, too, is like about cults. The rank and file cult members are sincere. So, you know, this person's name was Chuck. That wasn't his only purpose. Of course, he wanted me to move in and join, but he actually did want to tell me about the gospel and show me and wanted me to be saved. So that's the thing. When you meet someone from a cult, they're often very sincere. So you don't pick up, oh, this person's devious. Maybe I need to get away from them. They appear kinda normal, except for the fact maybe they're holding a Bible or maybe that doesn't appear normal. But do you understand what I'm saying? There wasn't any really red red flags or this person was grabbing me or, you know, uh trying to abduct me. They were just <laughs> talking to me. <laughs> so I thought, well, he was friendly too.
1: Yeah. And and right? I think that's a good point because we hear these stories in Scientology or any of the other big, you know, f- cults that are in the news all the time, where you're right, the rank and file people who are really in it, they think they're, quote, saving the world or yes. they're, they're helping save other people. They're not there necessarily to get money out of you right away. It's right, not until right. later that those schemes become, you become aware of that. Yeah. Because
0: that's in the background. But, you know, that it's an important distinction to bring out. I mean, usually when you meet culture, you're meeting the rank and file are also, oh, this is great. This, you know, they're enthusiastic about about it. And they think it's a good thing and they want you to be in it too.
1: Right. Exactly. You're not meeting the leader and you're not even meeting no. the people who are the lie- lieutenants and things like that are right. much different. Yeah. That's right. So when you first went into the group, you, you moved in pretty quickly. Do you think that's because you just, you said it was like a perfect storm. You know, you didn't have a place to live. That's things, right. things weren't working out and you felt a brotherhood with these guys.
0: Right. There's a little bit of push and pull. I mean, I was rooming with some college students and they went away for the summer and I was going to have to pay the rent during summer summer. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't really have a high paying job. So I was like, I'm not gonna be able to cut this. So I started looking for rooms to rent. You know, that was going to be difficult. And at the same time, there's a real pull. The brothers really wanted me to move in, but I was actually resisting moving in. Not that I didn't like them, but I'm like, you know, you know, wanted my freedom. I mean, they're a little bit of my not being entirely sure about it, but things just seemed to, to, to work, you know, the net fell in place, so to speak. Yeah, and I moved in.
1: Yeah. And did yeah, you I don't like remember it, it being
0: shocking. I liked it at first. Yeah. I mean, I had friends there. So it wasn't like this is terrible. What am I getting myself into? Even though I had the resistance. <laughs> it wasn't like major like, oh, no, I'm going to jail or something. It was more like, OK, I moved in.
1: Were there like rules and regulations right away or was it a more comfortable entrance? into the group because it got very comfortable. Str-
0: yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, it, they kind of sugarcoat everything as well.
1: Yeah.
0: I and, mean, there were things going on, maybe in the interview with your mother, yeah. you know, people were leaving. There was a lot going on. People didn't want to be there. But so the ones who are staying are still recruiting more people. And I kind of hate to use the word recruiting as well. I mean, like I said, they're also trying to present the gospel. It's a mix. That's what's so difficult about it. But they don't want you to know that really. And they're not going to tell you about all the troubles in your organization or the meetings they've at with Stuart, which are really bad for them. And they were really devastating. They're not telling you these things. You're not getting all the information enough. You don't know what you're walking into.
1: And interestingly, you talk about adopting that same MO later where you didn't want to tell new people. The whole reality. No, not either. especially.
0: Yes, that's that's important too. You know, I also thought too if a lot of new people came in, things would get better. Stuart, Stuart wouldn't be so mad at us, and and you know, so there are mixed motivations. You know, I will also have in talking to people.
1: So, can you give us the year time frame on this? So, you were witnessed to or recruited and moved in what year?
0: 1980.
1: And then you ended up ultimately leaving Kobu. What year? Ninete-
0: 1993.
1: Yeah. Okay. So long time. So you were there. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. Pretty much your whole young adulthood, you know, 20s, mid 30s. And so did you meet Stuart early on? Did you start understanding who this man was who was leading, or did you learn about him through the members?
0: Through the members at first. And I was also really prepared what to think about him as well. Now that I look back on it, some of the things they were telling me were not really true. Now, the first conversation, of course, I didn't even realize there was a Stuart in the group, there was a leader. I didn't think I met all these people in the fellowship house you know it's like a frat house or something you know and uh, everyone's living in it and it's it's fine but well they wanted to tell me about Stuart's great exploits in witnessing and everything so that's when I first started hearing about him and one of the untruths they were telling me is like Stuart's just like any other brother just older and with with more insight so I remember them talking to me about him like that and that's not really true at all right that was the official view of what Stewart was all about
1: that was the party line.
0: That was the party line. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. And also now I was going to go to my first, what they called a big meeting, where the whole church gets together somewhere. We're going to meet Stuart. And of course, I want to prepare you because you're going to see this guy with a long beard, dressed kind of funny, and like, we want to manage your impression of him. We want you to think this of him. So when you get there, we've already told you that he's kind of a wise man and he cares about us and he really understands the Bible. God has given him insight. So, you know, that was my early impressions of Stuart. Your yes.
1: impressions were their impressions, it sounds like. That's because right. Or the
0: ones they wanted me to have. I don't think they quite thought of him only in that way.
1: Now, well, how would you describe Stuart having gotten to know him as a cult leader over the years? I mean, oh, with this perspective now, yes. I know this is a huge question, but just give us the highlights, I guess.
0: All right. He's deeply manipulative, a mastermind, a sociopath, not a psychopath. Psychopaths, you know, harm people physically. never the sociopath, he's able to manipulate social situations, manipulate people and their thoughts, use their weaknesses on them like shame or guilt. And he's very good at understanding all that and and working with it, playing people against one another without quite looking like he's doing that.
1: Yeah, while hiding in the
0: background. While hiding in the background, yes.
1: Now, can you give us some examples? You gave many examples in your book, but for listeners who don't really understand mm-hmm. how a one person can do this, how did he manipulate the group? How did he use you against one another? I mean, what were uh-huh. his methods?
0: Okay. It's hard to say in just a few words. I know. Well, let's let's say we interact with Stuart in a meeting. He's going to create a crisis of some kind. Those among us who are not behaving right, whatever the terms are, they're not fully for God. And are you one of them or are you on, on this side? So you have to make Divisions between the people um, and get them to fight out and accuse one another and point the finger at one another and make speeches to prove themselves that they really do care or they're really on God's side. I mean, that, that's part of it. Another one is to break up the church into different competing groups. You have the older brothers and older sisters, middle brothers and sisters who've been there for a while longer, and then the new people who are called lambs or young sheep. And what you want to do is create a suspicion in the newest people about the oldest people. So the oldest. Most people, of course, are doing all the, the backbone, all the work and everything like that. But you want the younger group of people to think of the older group of people as those who have somehow gone astray. They're strange. They're weird. They act funny. You should be on guard around them. You keep everyone on their toes, like intimate enemies. All the people who are around you are really not trustworthy, that kind of a thing. That's just scratching the surface.
1: He, What I what I really picked up from my mom's stories and then Yours, and at a much deeper level, is that he really did use people against one another as opposed to face them head on.
0: Yeah, so he that's would, a good way. Yeah, it was that.
1: like he was controlling the chess game. He was playing the yes. chess game, but he wasn't on the board himself.
0: That's a good one. And the analogy of a chess game is really good for describing how he played. And you could even go on to it. It's one of those chess games where there's like three levels to it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It goes deep. But chess, <laughs> the concept of plotting, it wasn't checkers. It wasn't just like, I'm going to overpower you. I'm 10 moves ahead of you, and I also play on several levels above you and it's very, very deep. And, you know, Kobu yes. is one of those groups where people leave physically, but they don't leave in their minds and it has a high rate of what they call recidivism where people go back to it and because it's so internalized see and that's what i mean about the manipulation it takes a long time to leave internally like a lot of people they'll leave the unification church or different groups and they're out they're out i've had enough of that but kobu people still that the patterns the ways of thinking and you know it stays with us it's easy to get people out of the cult but it's hard to get the cult out of people
1: you know, mm-hmm. my parents are examples of that. My mom in her story talks about leaving twice. And this was very unclear to me until she talked about oh, how that okay. happened. They right. left when I was two and then left again when I was about three and a half because mm-hmm. and I said, well, why did you go back? I mean, they moved all the way to Florida. They started a brand new life. They were around family. They were, you know, of the world again. And they weren't really in contact with any Kobu members. And then all of a sudden what happens yeah, is they, they went back and they, mm. I said, Mom, why? Why Did you go back? And she said, because people said it had changed. The kobu people had the changed.
0: They said it got better. They said
1: it got better. They said, oh, Stuart's um, not like this anymore. The meetings that aren't that. Exactly. And when I read your book, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this went on for 20 more years. People just yes. kept influencing. Really, ex-members, by saying it's not that bad anymore. It's like any abusive relationship. Like, baby, I'm sorry. Yes, come that's back. That's a to good
0: me. one. Yes, come back. I won't be that way. And I you'll won't be too. Better <laughs> again for a while. They right. really will. If you come back, there were several of the women who came back, and um, they get the royal treatment for about three to six months, and they can do no wrong. And then suddenly the rug is pulled out from under exactly. them.
1: Exactly. That's what happened with my parents too. They went back, and things were better. And then all of a sudden, my mom really saw the light when she went on a Haiti trip with Stuart and he was mm-hmm. awful, awful,
0: right. you know, right. and
1: she said he hasn't changed at all. And not you know, at all. Yeah. And she was like, I, what am I doing? Why am mm-hmm. I being convinced that things are different when they're the same and they're only getting worse? So
0: right.
1: it really does take a few times to leave a cult. And I think this kind of leads me into the question that everyone asks. And so I'll ask it too: what took you so long to leave and did you leave several right. times or did it, did you leave in your mind or did you hmm. tell us about okay. that? It took you okay. 13, 14 years.
0: Okay. Well, let me let me answer a little thing uh, about your parents going back one time. Uh, I know that exit counselors call that a revolving door exit. You don't just leave. They come (laughs) back and go around a few times. So I think I mentioned that in in my book, too. Some people leave. Other people come back and they come back. Some of them came back and went many times. But for me, I mean, I left once and for all. So for me, it was more gradual. I did get kicked out, but I stayed in contact with the group and moved back in. So that wasn't me leaving, per se. I mean, I got put out and I should have just kept going. Right. I'm like, fine, enough of that. You know, you're going to kick me out. But, you know, I still internalized the group.
1: So what led to it? You you mentioned reading. You mentioned talking mm-hmm. to ex-members. You mentioned questioning Stuart directly, which never works out well.
0: It you know, doesn't work so. out well, but it's good that it doesn't work out well because the way you get treated can help you. You know, It's like an aha moment. I thought we we're supposed to be fair. We're allowed to talk about things and ask questions and you find out how you get treated. You like, oh, I thought the man was supposed to be fair. And so I don't mind that I got treated that way. I mean, imagine if Stuart said, you know, you have a point there and we should discuss this more. I would have thought, wow, I'm really contributing this or we're able to really talk about, you know, be open and you find out it's not that way.
1: That's a really good point. If you question yeah, things yes. in your you're treated badly for it. That's eye
0: opening. Right. And it may not feel good at the time, but I think you're in a cult and you get treated badly. That can be sometimes the best thing that ever happened to you. That's very uh, true. W- with regard to being in the cult and you're leaving, it, that can be a good thing. Let's see for leaving too. It's like attrition. As I was getting older, I was getting worn down by the cult. Uh, I, one book I read when I was still in said people leave because two reasons. They see the discrepancy between their lifestyles and the, the cult leader's lifestyle. Like he tells you to live a certain way, which is self-denial and, you know, poverty, chastity and obedience. And meanwhile, he's, he's living large, you know, he's got all this stuff and like, wait a minute, you know, uh, we're all supposed to be in this together. And So you see that and also just you get worn out. And also how cults tamper with relationships, especially men-women relationships. And there was a lot of that going on in Kobu, you know, basically forbidding relationships.
1: I would love to, to for you to explain how Stuart accomplished that, because he never came right out and forbid marriage. I mean, he... he Not was He wasn't a legal person. He could he wasn't like the no. police. You know, he could be like, I have written a law. But how did he accomplish right. basically forbidding marriage is what he did. And, and he didn't want any families. He didn't even want relationships let alone not marriage. in
0: relationships, no. How did he
1: do that?
0: Um Well, first of all, he always stated marriage is in the Bible. It's not wrong, but you're not worthy of it. I mean, that was the core thing. I mean, he would say it in different ways that, you know, marriage is a byproduct of faithfulness to Jesus and you're not faithful to Jesus. So therefore, and then he would say, well, you know, none of these women would want to be interested in a man like you. And, and you know, those kind of things. You just paint a terrible picture of marriage if you weren't faithful to Jesus, of course, according to the way that Stuart said you had to be faithful to Jesus. I mean, that's very I, I could go on and probably could write several pages about how he did that. But the mainly, it's not wrong, but you don't live up to the standards. If I were to say it in a few words, that, that's it.
1: Do you think that this had a different motivation, though? You, you do you did come to this conclusion later. So what, what do you think this was really about? Him not well,
0: it's economic, okay. economic. So you have a, a labor force without ties or commitments to family. You can be deployed to anywhere in the church at a moment's notice to another place. There's no roots to pick up, but you throw everything in a duffel bag and go. And also you want to be have people available to work around the clock. I mean, if you have family, you can't do that. Look, you know, I have children. We have to do this. Or you want to go on a vacation or, you know, there's living expenses and all that. And a good way to avoid all that is to keep people single and to warehouse them.
1: Like a work important. camp, you you describe work your camp. you yeah, describe like your work time camp. there like a work camp. At,
0: I mean, yeah, your daily existence. Not, yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. What? Explain a little bit about just like a day in the life. After a while, the grind that you went through, I found that really heartbreaking. You know, the what they were ha- where they were having you sleep, what they were having oh, yeah. you do for your work hours. I mean, it, it, there was no purpose to it that was spiritual. After a while, it seemed like it was not just really. a workforce.
0: Right. There was an avowed purpose. The purpose of the church is to make Jesus known. Of course, you need money for that. You got to pay for the vans we drive around in or the literature or whatever. And it's really just to make money. And we worked in the business, you know, when I say 24 hours a day, in other words, you might get up at, at um, eight in the morning or you might wake up at one in the morning after having worked until four in the morning. I mean, one in the afternoon. In other words, you were it was just ongoing. I mean, jobs are going on all the time, either in carpet cleaning, construction, wood floor refinishing. And we were basically basically work crews all the time and and for a while we were recruiting homeless people and and taking them with us for that as well and just working around the clock that you know that's that's what it was
1: yeah and what were you paid for this nothing Did you ever question when you came to find out how Stuart was living in several places or that he was buying airplanes or that he was, you know, expanding his empire personally? Did you ever question that? Or did you think that that was just a part of how the church? Well, I did,
0: but reading books on cults helped me see that because what the cult leader will do, it won't be in the cult leader's name. It's in the name of the church or the cult. This mansion is owned by the Church of Bible Understanding. These airplanes are owned by the Church of Bible Understanding. And as the president of the Church of Bible Understanding, Stuart gets to live in that, fly that, you know. Enjoy all the benefits of that. So it was carefully done.
1: And when you actually got your tax return, this was mm-hmm. bat- staggering to me. You explained how the, I guess, the return itself or the paperwork said that you had donated all of your income to Everything the church. Everything to the church
0: Bible understanding, yes.
1: So that means you get no Social Security out of that?
0: You have... I think there was because... Um... Some Social Security. I don't remember in, entirely how it worked. In other words, I made the money officially and then donated it to the church. Got so it. I would still get Social Security okay. on that.
1: So you were an actual employee, but they would say then, oh, it was all donated.
0: They'd say that you weren't. You were employed by Christian Brothers uh, as your employer. You're not employed by the church. He had accountants to work that out. He did. Yeah. It was that- all... Legal. He wasn't evading taxes. He's avoiding taxes. So that's legal.
1: Yeah, he was. And the reason mm-hmm. he established the Kobu was to incorporate it as a church. Yes. From the Forever yeah. family. And mm-hmm. my mom actually discusses this. You know, the I, she was there when it was the Forever family. She was there at the very beginning. She and my dad both mm-hmm. were really original members. And they were all very happy when it transformed into Kobu because it had the word Bible and church in it. And it sounded
0: right. Less, it sounds official. It
1: sounded less like the less Manson like family. It sounded like, like the Manson. Manson yeah. They were like, yes. please, can we change this name? We sound like we're going to kill people, you know? And and so Stuart really made that seem like a group decision. But when you look back on it, it was really about him getting a tax write-off.
0: Yes. Yeah, it was very yes, very shrewd in that way.
1: Yeah, it's there's so many behind the scenes things that you can only see when you're looking back. And I'm sure that's been your mm-hmm. experience as well. When you're in it, it's hard to put the pieces together.
0: Yeah. So when that was happening, when your mother was in it, like you say, it sounds great. Wow. We're officially the church exactly. of Bible understanding, the church that understands the Bible. I mean, <laughs> who could argue with that?
1: Exactly. I mean, if
0: you're in the group, who could argue with that?
1: And then much like you point out in the book, Stuart was always coming up with a new campaign or a new idea that would All create hope. And so hers was going to Haiti. With She was there mm-hmm. at the beginning, and my father was too, and they were very excited because my mom really had a heart for helping children and helping. Right. She was put in charge of the women's houses. She was, I mean, she's always been, even after we left the Kobu, she's always been a mm-hmm. Sunday school teacher. You know, she drives special needs kids now around. Like, this is really mm-hmm. what her heart was. And so... She Stuart kind of played on that with some people. They said, well, let's have Judy go to Haiti. You know, she this will be her mission and she'll be doing this for the Church of Bible understanding. And of course, it comes to pass that it's just another money making scheme for Stuart. And when she got down there, she realized his intentions were otherwise. But Mm -hmm. this is what he does. He plays on your sincerity.
0: Oh, yeah. He used he used our sincerity
1: and your Mm -hmm. yeah. And your your actual real hopes for helping people. And that's what makes me so sad about groups like this, because I think they're all the same in that way. It's not just Kobu mm-hmm. that does this. The leader is so much different than the followers. And I think people need to yes, understand that's right.
0: that. That's the, right. The
1: followers aren't sociopaths by and large. They're not. No. They're not there to trick people. They're actually thinking that something is going to happen that has a great outcome from all the sacrifices they're making. And it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you're being led by someone so much different than you.
0: Well, yeah, we couldn't imagine that.
1: What were the wake up calls? Because let's go back to that question. What, what took you so long? You know, what were the wake-up calls along the way?
0: Okay, well, maybe the first one, a lot of people were complaining about, Stuart. But see, that was labeled as them being contentious. And there's a verses in the Bible about contentious people who speak against God's people. And as a naive new believer, you know, perhaps that's what these people are. And they look angry, so they look kind of enraged. So they look like they're disturbed people. And I didn't think perhaps they had good reason to be that way. And okay, I mean, that perhaps is an earlier wake-up call call. But I think the big wake-up call, um, I described in my book where Stuart said he was starting over, and um, he said he was changing. As you noted, he was always saying that he's changing. Mm-hmm. If I were to call up Kobe right now, I have a few people in there, and I know they would tell me, you know, things are getting better now. <laughs> you ought to come back. So, so I mean, it doesn't surprise me anymore. But Stuart, really, he did a really, really big one. He's really changing. And he had because certain things had gone on, and he had to do damage control because of his wife knew about some of his philanderings. And uh, it was about to hit the fan. So he really needed to do something. So he did this big show of he's changing, he's repenting. And um, he gave all the reasons for it. And he's basically a victim of his own teachings because he had taught all these things, but he had left out God's grace, which is, you know, God being kind to you. And he's more into the harsh driving thing. And, and gee, fellas, they all made life hard for you too. And I believe, I actually believed that um, he was going to change. And then over the next months where I began to see, you know what, he's not changing. So that was the first big wake up call, right? Because I always kind of knew he was kind of hard on everybody and him saying it. Wow. Okay. He's admitting it. Okay. So Stuart kind of allowed me to question Stuart because gee, I used to think that before, but I wasn't allowed to say it, but he's actually saying these things about himself that I used to think about him. So it's almost like the cult leader gave me the cult permission to think bad about the cult leader. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's how that's how deep I was into it, you know? Yeah. Um, I was allowed to question the leader when the leader finally said, you can question me. Well, at least my past actions, not my present actions. So that was cognitive dis- uh, dissonance there.
1: Right. And then you also started reading at that time about I cults, did. right? I did, yes. And how did that um, help
0: you? Well, I didn't start reading about cults. I actually started reading about uh, Christian history and especially the Reformation, because I got interested in it. And I also began questioning you know, well, Stuart's been teaching wrong all these years and he's teaching us things now that seem a bit strange. What do Christians believe over the centuries? I mean, what did they believe 500 years ago? Because I mean, are we the only true way? So what did people believe over the years? What what has stood the test of time? So I began to read that and learn a lot like about the Protestant Reformation or the earliest time in the church. But what really uh, opened my eyes, I, I read a book called Christianity in America, and they went into to all the groups like the Methodists and, you know, the the Puritans, you know, things you would expect to find if you're reading about a religion in America. But then they had, they had a chapter on all the weird groups that went back all the way to the time of the American Revolution, and they listed some of them and their habits, and a lot of them are communal. And I'm like, oh, gee, you know, that's what we are. Yeah this isn't new. And that, that was a, that was a, like a turning point for me. So from there, I started really, really reading about cults. Um, I would have been afraid to read about cults before because I thought this was going to poison my mind and, you know, whatever. But once I realized about religion in America and these, these strange groups led by the charismatic leader who broke away from the mainstream, uh, denominations saying that only he, or sometimes she, there were females who did it too, that God has spoken to them and everyone else is wrong and I'm going to restore the true light of Christianity to the world. And they start a movement. And um, I realize, well, that's what we are.
1: We'll pause here for now, but join us for the continuing story on the next episode of Cult Talk. Also, join the listener conversation over on the Cult Talk with Aaron Martin Facebook page. Follow at Cult Talk on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from any platform and leave us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. Cult Talk is written and hosted by me, Aaron Martin, and produced by Dan McInerney. See the show notes attached to this episode for all links to resources and social media associated with Cult Talk.
0: Hold up. What was that?